Francis Schaeffer was a great defender of the Christian faith, uh, a man who really was raised up during the turbulent years. I mean, he was prepared his whole life. He was a pastor, but along with his wife and his family, after World War II, God moved him to Europe. There were so many orphans in Europe, they felt like the Lord wanted them to minister to children who were without parents, who were lost and without hope. And that was kind of what took them to Europe. But what happened, none of that worked out. And you, you can, if you ever get a chance to read their biography written by Edith Schaefer called The Tapestry, one of the greatest autobiographies I've ever read they, they would hit wall after wall after wall after wall. <laughs> and it got so discouraged, they were actually going to, they were in Switzerland and they were going to be put out of Switzerland. And then at the very last moment, and they were looking for a place to lease and they couldn't find anything. And through an amazing series of events, uh, on the last day, Francis said to Edith, I'm done. We're going home. It's over. They're not going to renew our visa. We've got to pack up and leave. And she um, said, all right. But the next morning, she asked, would you be okay if I just went out this morning one more time? And he said, that's fine. Yeah, I'm not going. I, I, it's, it's over. He'd lost all hope. And she's walking the streets of this little village and she's praying, Lord, you brought us here for a reason. Help us to find a place to rent. And uh, she's walking down the street praying. And suddenly someone says, Mrs. Schaefer, Mrs. Schaefer. And it was a real estate agent she had met with before and and he said, uh, Mrs. Schaefer, I have a place for you. She said, you do? He said, do you have 20 minutes to take a drive and see it? She said, sure. And they drive up through these winding mountains and it's pretty foggy. And they get out of this chalet and she looks at it and look goes, and, and, and she, she just immediately senses this would work. And he said, I've got to run an errand. You look. I'll be back in 20, 30 minutes. She said, fine. And as he started to drive off, she said, she said, how much is the rent? He said, rent is for sale. <laughs> they didn't have a dime. And it was perfect. She came back and told her husband. And they prayed. And... That night they said, Lord, if you want us, we, we can't even imagine how we could buy. But if that's what you have, we're, we're trusting you. Well, 10 days earlier, in a town in Pennsylvania where they used to pastor, a husband and his wife who were members of that church and had kept up with their little ministry had just sold a piece of property. And as they were going to bed, they were praying together. And they had realized a prophet and they looked at each other and one of them said, you know, I have a sense that we should give this prophet to the Schaefers, to what they're doing over there in Switzerland. And they both agreed. And the husband said, in the morning, I'll send a check. And he started to get in bed, and his wife said, you need to go down and drop it off right now. I just have a sense that's what we need to do. So he did. He put on his clothes, went down, go to check, envelope, boom, post office. Ten days later, the Schaefers are praying, Lord, if this would be what you would have, 
and he told them how much the down payment would be. And I mean, you know, there, I mean, there was no possible way. There was just no possible way. And the next morning, they're praying again. The postman comes. Oh, here's a letter from our friends. And there was a check that covered the down payment that was necessary. How do you explain that? It's explained for us in John chapter 6. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Francis Schaeffer had this term he used because he dealt with a lot of kids that were struggling with philosophy and all of this. And is there any truth? There's no absolute truth. You know, postmodernism, all this stuff. He came up with a phrase called true truth. True truth. Speaking about God's revelation, speaking about the word of God. It's true truth. So I want to give you five true truths tonight. Number one, and this is the longest one. The first true truth is this. The ultimate solution to any crisis is the almighty power of Christ. The second true truth. When individuals or nations reject Christ, they will fall apart. Not immediately, but they will fall apart. Number three, the third true truth. Jesus is the breath of life. B-R-E-A-T-H. He's the breath of life. Now what we're going to see as we get into John 6 in a minute is that John 6 is all about the fact that Jesus is the bread of life. But he's not only the bread of life, he's the breath of life. The fourth true truth, and we're seeing this now around us, the Lord Jesus judges rebellious nations. It's already said in the Gospel of John that, that the Father has given all judgment to the Son. The fifth true truth is this. The Lord Jesus provides for his people even in the worst of times. So back to number one, the ultimate solution to any crisis is the almighty power of Christ. What we have in verses 1 through 16 of John chapter 6 is one of the most famous miracles that Jesus ever did. It was the miracle that was witnessed by more people than any other miracle he ever did. It was the feeding of the 5,000. Which in actuality, there were 5,000 men. But when you count the wives, and you count the kids, and back then they tended not to have 1.3 children. They had multiple children. It's... it's uh, it's well within the realm of possibility that the feeding of the 5,000 men wasn't actually the feeding of 15 to 20,000 people. 6-1, after these things, what things? What occurred in chapter 5, the healing of the paralytic? There's, um, without going into a lot of detail, it's, 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 it, there's somewhere between six months and a year after the events of chapter 5. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. They weren't necessarily following because they believed that he was the Messiah, that he was God. Some did, but most were just taken with the thrill they were, they were taken with what he could do. They, they were astonished by it. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Three, then Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. So this area is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. If, if you take a tour to Israel, usually what happens, you, you fly all night, you, 
you get into Tel Aviv, they put you on a bus, and the first place you go is a, is a city on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee called Tiberias. And um, that's kind of where you start. And then just above Tiberias, you, you, you go north, and then it goes around a little bit, is Capernaum, and this over here is Galilee, and it, it's, it's amazing to be there when you get close to Capernaum, and this whole area has, it's called a mountain, but not rocky mountain mountains. They're more like uh, really large and steep hills. And there are hills there that there's been not, no development. They've been careful about that. But there are hills there, different sites where very easily that could be the site where Jesus did this miracle with 15, 20,000 people. Easy. It fits the topography. So Jesus sits down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him. A large crowd. Thousands. He said to Philip. And he's going to kind of give Philip a test here. He says, Philip. Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Where are we going to find food for 15 or 20,000 people? Now, Philip was from this region. He knew where the Costco's were. He knew where the Kroger's were. Um, and it says in the text in the next verse what Jesus was doing. This he was saying to test him. Now watch this. For he himself knew what he was intending to do. Jesus already knew what he was going to do. He always knew what he was going to do. But see, the disciples don't know. Uh, Philip doesn't know. All, all Philip knows, and Philip is a numbers guy. Philip would have been a CPA. He would have been a financial analyst. You need those guys. So how do you know that? Well, you, he's already working the numbers. He was saying this to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him and said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. He had already done the math. You needed at least that much to give everyone a little. Just a little, an hors d'oeuvre. Not a meal. That would have been the equivalent, so a denarii was uh, what a common laborer would get for one day's work. So he's saying 200 denarii, 200 days of work. In other words, we had a crisis on our hands. We got a major crisis. We've got these people. Uh, we got a need, and we don't have the means we don't have the resources to meet this overwhelming need. Jesus knew that. Jesus actually planned it. Jesus set it up. By the way, whatever's going on in your life or in my life, <laughs> I'm laughing because, you know, I've been studying this for the last week. And there's some people we love and they ask us to pray about a situation. We said we would. And they, they were hoping that the Lord would provide so that they could do something that would be a benefit to their family. Am I clouding this enough? I am. The Lord had done some providential things and it looked like it was going to happen. And Sunday night, they called us and said, it's not going to happen. And I woke up Monday morning and I was de as depressed as I can remember being in years. I just had a dark cloud over me. I mean, I was bothered. 
uh, deeply. And <clears throat> I got my coffee and I went upstairs into my study and I had to get calibrated to the Lord. And I have this book of old uh, called The Valley of Vision. The Valley of Vision was compiled and they're short prayers from different Puritan pastors. And uh, it's solid stuff. It's just a small little deal and it's, you know, no more than a page and a half. And I had underlined this particular prayer, I don't know, two years ago. And I have a tab on it and I thought I got to go there. So I just turned to it. And with the prayer, in the midst of the prayer, it says this, if I'm not right, set me right and keep me right. In other, way, in other words, recalibrate me. I was, I was, I wasn't going to come out and say it, but I was deeply bothered that God had not come through on that deal. The problem wasn't with God, the problem was with me. Now, have I ever seen God do that in my life? Sure. The greatest things that have happened to me in my life, the greatest things that have ever happened to me have come out of the deepest disappointments. So why did I forget that? I don't know, I just did. <laughs> you know, it took me a while. To, it just took me a while. To get, and, and, I, and I prayed it, and I said, you know, and then it was like it, it kept coming back to me, and I, you know, I said, Lord, I'm sorry. You know what you're doing? I know that, I believe it. Help me to lay this aside and trust you. If I'm not right, set me right. What the chiropractor does. You go in there and he says, yeah, let me just feel it. <coughs> you're kind of shocked and it kind of hurts. And all of a sudden you go, whoa, that feels, man, that feels good. They're, they're in a crisis here. That, by the way, if you're in a crisis, you know, the Lord's sovereign over all crises. And a lot of times what is needed to get out of the crises, there's no possible way you're going to be able to do that. Just like the Schaefer's in Switzerland back there after World War II. Philip has already run the numbers and now Jesus addresses Andrew. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, and Andrew wasn't a numbers guy, he was sort of a people person. Because uh, he was the kind of guy that he liked people and he, you know, there's this crowd and he's talking to people and finding out who's there. And so one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here. They'd say in Scotland, a wee lad. There's a lad here who has five barley loaves. These aren't big commercial loaves. This is more like um, a flatbread. You know, not, not small. There's a, there's, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. The fish was probably pickled because that's how they cured it. He, he probably wasn't walking around with two fish. Is more than likely, I'm assuming, something like this. His, his mother had probably preserved it because gave it to him for a lunch. And they would take that pickled fish and spread it on the flatbread. It was just enough for a little boy to have a lunch. There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? In other words, we're in a crisis and uh, there's no possible way that we're gonna handle this crisis. We don't have the resources. I mean, it's, it's just out of our control. Jesus said, verse 10, have the people sit down. Why would you say that? Because you always sit down if you're gonna have a feast. Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. That tells us it was spring. Because that's the only time there's much grass on those hills right above on that, on that side of uh, the Sea of Galilee. If it was summer, it'd be brown. It would be burned up. Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. 5,000 men. Jesus then took the loaves and having given thanks, so there you go, right there. Why do we uh, give thanks before we eat a meal? 
Well, Jesus gave us the example. I think it's always pretty cool when you're in a restaurant and you see folks bow their head. Or there's a family. They're in a restaurant. They don't, I mean, you know, it's just what they do. They grab hold hands and they pray. That's great. That's a good thing. They're giving thanks. Why wouldn't you give thanks? Jesus gave us the model. Jesus then took the loaves and having given thanks, he just, oh, watch this, watch this. This is incredible. And having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, and, and can I say this? A lot of these people rarely were filled because they were poor people. Back then, you had a lot of kids. And when you have a lot of kids and you don't have much, a lot of times the parents will eat a little bit, but they won't eat at all because they got kids and they'll give, normally what they would eat, they'll give it to their kids. You understand that. So a lot of these folks, they weren't used to being filled. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. What's the deal with the baskets? Well, when you travel in backpacks or rolling suitcase, you just would have a wicker basket. So there was enough, 12 apostles, there was enough for those guys for the next day. If you stop and think about what Jesus did earlier at Cana at the wedding, what Jesus did was that Jesus turned the water into wine. What Jesus does here is that he turns the bread into bread. He turns the fish into fish. <laughs> well, how did he do that? I mean, did he suddenly just, were there just suddenly pallets of bread and fish? And No, no. You, you know what he did? He, would just, he just started taking fragments of bread to that disciple and he would go feed the 50 or whatever. But there was still the bread. This was multiplication. Multiplication. God invented multiplication. Normally you take fragments and what, what's happening? You're taking the fragments and when you take them off the loaf, you're subtracting. No, he multiplied. So he takes the fragments and he's still got the same amount and he just keeps, he just keeps turning the bread into bread and the fish and the fish. That's what he did. Verse 14, therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who was to come into the world. 15 is interesting. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Here's an example where, once again, the people don't get it. They th they've got this thing where they're tired of Roman oppression and they think that the Messiah is going to be an earthly king and that he will overthrow the Romans and that the oppression of the Romans will be done. They'll make him a king. Um, my gosh, look, I mean, he'll feed us. He'll take care of us. He'll provide. We'll have a socialist state. I mean, that's what they were thinking. But you see, that's not what Jesus had in mind. He said, my kingdom is none of this world. His kingdom is coming. So what did Jesus do? They, they wanted to make him king. What did Jesus do? He just went stealth. You've heard of a stealth fighter jet? You've heard of a stealth bomber? Jesus was always going stealth. When a crowd wanted him, sometimes they wanted to throw him off a cliff. Sometimes they wanted to kill him. Sometimes they wanted to make him king. But if it wasn't time, he just went stealth. He was there and he was gone. And all of this was done by the almighty power of Christ. 
It's there to let us know who he is and what he does. We're going to get to the later part of this chapter in a couple of weeks. But for now, take a look at verse 31 of John 6. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. So for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness. They came out of Egypt. You know the story. There were 2 million people, men, women, and kids, for 40 years. There were no Costco's. There were no Kroger's. There were no, there was nothing. And for 40 years, God had them in the wilderness, and they never missed a meal. Because God provided something called what? Manna. The manna. And six days, they'd get up in the morning and the manna would be there. And six days, they'd gather. You weren't together more or it'd go bad. The day before the Sabbath, you were to collect double. And that would last you and it wouldn't go bad. But for 40 years, God fed 2 million people with the manna. Uh, It says that for 40 years, their sandals never wore out. Never. God sustained them. God took care of them by his almighty power. Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, now watch this. Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. That's Jesus. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. That's Jesus. 34. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. He's talking not just physical needs. He's talking about the greatest need, which is a spiritual need, is to be born again, is to have eternal life. I don't want to get ahead of the story, but he's the son of God. He's the savior. And... We tend to forget, and this is when we get in despair, and this is when we get overwhelmed, and this is when we get depressed. We tend to forget his almighty power, which is still available to us. J.C. Ryle, in his comments on this passage, says, We have for one thing in this miracle a lesson about Christ's almighty power. We see our Lord feeding 5,000 men with five barley loaves, two small fishes. We see clear proof that a miraculous event took place in the 12 baskets of fragments that remained after all had eaten. Creative power was manifestly exercised. Food was called into existence that did not exist before. In healing the sick and raising the dead, something was amended or restored that had already existed. Did you get that? In healing the sick, raising the dead, something was amended or restored that had already existed. In feeding 5,000 men with five loaves, something must have been created which before had no existence. Do you see that? It's the almighty power of God. That's what he did in Genesis 1. He spoke the worlds into existence. They didn't exist, and suddenly they were there. Such history as this ought to be specially instructive and encouraged to all who endeavor to do do good to souls, people we love who don't know the Lord. It shows us the Lord Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. He is one who has all power over dead hearts. Not only can he mend that which is broken, build up that which is ruined, heal that which is sick, strengthen that which is weak, he can do even greater things than these. He can call into being that which was not before and call it out of nothing. We must never despair of anyone being saved. 
So long as there is life, there is hope. Reason and sense may say that some poor sinner is too hardened or too old to be converted. Faith will reply, our master can create as well as renew with a savior who by his spirit can create a new heart. Nothing is impossible. We all have undoubtedly folks we're praying for and we've been praying for them for years and years and years and um, they've not come. And the longer we wait, the more we think they'll never come. You don't know that. We don't know that. George Mueller, there was a man that he prayed for for 35, 40 years. And the man just had a hard heart. And remarkably, I, I mean, it just, his heart was getting harder and harder and harder. And then the man came to Mueller and he said, I've been born again. I have trusted Christ. What, what all this is about in John 6 is that Jesus is not a great teacher. He, he's not just a great example. He's not just, he's God. He's God. He's the son of God. A lot of you guys are familiar with S. Lewis Johnson. He used to pastor at Believer's Chapel. Taught at Dallas Seminary for years. Dr. Johnson told a story about a Chinese Christian man who had a ministry uh, getting the gospel into China. His name was C.K. Lee. He was in the United States, Johnson says, some years ago and speaking at a church in California that, that was not real strong on the authority of Scripture. They had been. He wasn't aware of that. He, he went and he just preached the gospel. Afterwards, a young university student came to him and put to him this good question. Sir, why should we export Christianity to China when you have Confucianism in your own country? There are three reasons, Mr. Lee replied. First of all, Confucius was a teacher and Christ is a savior. China needs a savior more than she needs a teacher. In the second place, Confucius is dead and Jesus is living. China needs a living savior. And in the third place, Confucius someday is going to appear before Jesus Christ to be judged by him. China needs to know Christ as savior before she meets him as judge. Great answer. Second true truth. When individuals or nations reject Christ, they will, they will fall apart. There is a writer for the New York Times by the name of David Brooks. And I was put onto an article that he had done last week. And uh, he, he's, he's, he's wise, he's looked upon as a, a sage. Um, a lot of insight. The article um, that in his newsletter Jim Dennison referred to was from January 13th and Brooks wrote an article called America is Falling Apart at the Seams. And the first half of it is just going through different aspects of America which we all know, observe, I'm not going to read those stats, but we all know America's falling apart at the seams. It just is. We had a repair guy come today to repair a trash compactor for the fourth time. He pulled it out, got, you know, got the new setup. This is the fourth time. And he put it in and he goes, it's missing two parts. He said, I got to take this back. Uh, he said, I can't believe this. He said, this never used to happen. He said, things are just falling apart. And they are. Everything is falling apart. Brooks, you know, lays out the stats. You see it, I see it. He says this. But something darker and deeper seems to be happening as well. A long-term loss of solidarity 
a long-term rise in estrangement and hostility. This is what it feels like to live in a society that is dissolving from the bottom up as much from the top down. What the hell is going on? He said. The short answer is, listen to this. He says, the short answer? I don't know. Well, he's supposed to know. He writes in the New York Times. I also don't know what is causing the high rates of depression, suicide, and loneliness that dogged Americans even before the pandemic and that are the sad flip side of all the hostility and recklessness I've just described. We can round up the usual suspects, social media, rotten politics. Some of our poisons must be sociological, the fraying of the social fabric. Last year, Gallup had a report titled U.S. Church Membership Falls Below Majority for the First Time. Um, the Pew Research Center had a report, U.S. has the world's highest rate of children living in a single-parent household in the world. Uh, some of the poisons must be cultural. There was an article in the Washington Post, he references, America is a nation of narcissists. But then he says this, but there must also be some spiritual or moral problem at the core of this. Over the past several years and over a wide range of different behaviors, Americans have been acting in fewer pro-social and relational ways and in more antisocial and self-destructive ways. But why? As a columnist, I'm supposed to have some answers. But I just don't right now. I just know the situation is dire. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking, what happened to this guy? He didn't have any answers. But you see, I'm thinking to myself, I read an article by this guy not too long ago. And I looked it up. And uh, this was written in March of 2020 by David Brooks. And he does a whole analysis of what's going on in America. And the title of his article, here was his answer to what was wrong. The title of the article is, The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. Right there. What's a nuclear family? A husband, a wife, kids. Oh, marriage, not living together. Husband, wife, marriage, kids. And then the subtitle is, the family structure we've held up as the cultural idea for the past half century has been a catastrophe for many. Really. It's time to figure out better ways to live together. So apparently this guy had some answers two years ago. <laughs> but now he's out of answers. You know what's interesting about this? The nuclear family hasn't been around just for the last half century. God invented the nuclear family. It's interesting, we're in John 6, but at the end of John 5, do you remember Jesus talking to the Pharisees? And he said in 45, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father, the one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. What do you mean, Jesus? What do you mean Moses wrote about you? Well, I'm God. He wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And as we said last week, in Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is the primary agent of creation. <laughs> I love this stuff. And so what happened in Genesis 1? Everything that, uh, what, what's our second point here? When individuals and nations reject Christ, they will fall apart. We live in a culture that has rejected Christ. They've rejected his word. They've rejected what he says about his holiness and what is moral. We reject the Ten Commandments. 79% of Americans say people can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. That's utter nonsense. So you just had this guy in L.A. who stabbed to death this UCLA young lady 
and you get a DA in LA and in other places around the country, and uh, it's utter lawlessness. You can murder somebody, and you know what? You're out. You're not, you're not going to be in prison. You're out. You don't have to, you know, get a lot of money for bail. You're just, it's, what do you mean, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody? Only 35% of Americans believe moral truth is, is, is objective and absolute. Yeah, well, wait till they murder your daughter. Sixty-nine percent say any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable. In 2004, 60 percent of Americans opposed same-sex marriage. Fifteen years later, 61 percent support it. What happened? We rejected Christ. We rejected his word. We rejected his morality as outlined in scripture. The nuclear family was a mistake. I mean, that's so tragic. So real quick, Genesis 1. God invented the nuclear family. But you see, our culture hates Christ. They hate the truth. They hate the Bible. They're in rebellion to God. Notice Genesis 1.26. We've been over this before. Then God said, let us make man in our image. 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I mean, everybody understood that. It was accepted. I mean, everybody got that until about 10 years ago. And then suddenly we have this thing. Right after they got gay marriage legalized, which isn't marriage. Right after they got that legalized, within a week, they start moving to the gender thing. I mean, it was a tsunami. Because you see, there is an agenda. And the agenda is to bring down what God has put in place. You have to understand that. Read Psalm 2. The nations, the leaders of the nations are in rebellion to God. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And when you start messing with gender, it's a direct attack on the image of God. And that's serious. It's, it's, the seriousness of it cannot be underestimated. It cannot be minimized. It is devastating. And so because of this deception and because of these lies, we have leadership in this country that is so committed to that, that when you find out as a parent that that's going to be taught in the school and you show up, you're the domestic terrorist. And they're going to track you. They're confused about the guy in Colleyville in the synagogue. They couldn't figure out his motive. But they have no problem figuring it out if you love Christ and love your kids and you stand for biblical truth. You know that, I know it. Oh, by the way. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What does that mean? Have kids. Have kids. He said, what about marriage? Oh, that's down in 224. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, if you have male, male in that context, naked, they should be ashamed. If you got female, female, and they're naked in that context, they should be ashamed. Marriage is man, woman. Period. God owns marriage. He invented marriage. He's got the copyright. He's got the patent. Well, the Supreme Court. Tell me about the Supreme Court. What about them? Well, you know, they ruled. Yeah, mm-hmm. Let me say a word about the Supreme Court. They're not. One day they're all going to stand before the Supreme Court. And they're going to give an account. God invented the nuclear family. Take a look at Ephesians 5. 
God gives specific direction to the institution which he developed called the nuclear family. Now, hey, we live in a world of sin and brokenness and all of that. The Lord knows that. Sometimes you get married, the marriage doesn't work out. You can't make someone else. Maybe you were faithful, you wanted the marriage, but your spouse didn't. You can't do anything to stop them from leaving. There are all kinds of situations. The Lord gets this, he understands it, but he invented that's his, that was what he wanted. That's what was best. And then in Genesis 3, what happened? Sin comes into the world and everything got busted up and broken. So in Ephesians 5, 15, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine. That's dissipation. Be filled with the spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That's how you know you're filled with the Spirit. It's those things in 19 and 20 that come out of your life. By the way, in Colossians 3.16, you see the exact same list. Only instead of saying being filled with the Spirit, it says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. So what's the difference between letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you and being filled with the Spirit, there's no difference. They're the same. Because the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to control us. And when you're speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and not criticizing or gossiping or tearing down or slandering, and you're singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, and you're always giving thanks, even when the deal you hope would go through didn't go through, and even when this happens, and you see... That's a sign of being filled with the Spirit because you've got His Word and the Lord uses His Word to control you and to control your attitudes. And the more we walk with Him and the longer we walk with Him, the more mature we'd become. Oh, and by the way, people say, oh, the filling of the Spirit is this and is this experience, is this. Well, actually, it's not. It's what we just read. You don't need some experience. It's this. And by the way, it comes out in your relationships. Because as soon as he talks about being filled with the Spirit, letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within you, and then he gives the, uh, the fruit he just listed, what's the first thing he says? Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. We had a lot, a lot of wives, they're, they're competing with their husbands. But God has a hierarchy of relationships. This is not real popular. But it's how God has set up life. This magazine used to be the flagship magazine of the feminist movement. I don't know if they're even around anymore. The feminists are, but I don't know if the magazine is. But they are against a woman being in subjection to her husband. They hate it. Yet if you look at the masthead of uh, Ms. Magazine, they have a hierarchy of relationships. Executive editor, associate editor, managing editor, circulation editor, Dot, 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 a hierarchy. The very thing they preach against, they practice and they put it in print because you couldn't get a magazine out on time unless you had a hierarchy. Among equals, someone's got to lead, someone's got to follow. So he talks to wives. But you see, husbands are next. For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. As the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be their husbands and everything. Except if your husband's in sin, you don't have to be subject to him. You never follow somebody into sin, ever. Now look at 25. You know, you, you know why this works? Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. You have, any pro, you, you have difficulty with Jesus being Lord? You shouldn't. Because he's got your best interest in mind. You ever had a good boss? I mean, a really good boss? You love the guy. It's a delight to be around him. You ever had a real bad boss? Sure you have. You can't stand the guy. You hate going to work. The whole weekend you're screwed up because you're thinking about going to work on Monday. It's horrible. But when you've got someone over you that cares, and the same is for a wife. Our job is meant, what's my job as a Christian? It's to love my wife. It's, it's to enable her to experience joy and, and to grow together in Christ. And when I mess up and I screw up and 
I confess it. I deal with it. I ask for forgiveness. And I ask the Lord to help me. And we just keep moving on. But you're, you're not a tyrant. You're not manipulative. You're not domineering. You're not... That's not Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You're serving her. A lot of guys think, well, I'm the husband, I'm the head of the family. I'm the, you know, you think you're there to be served. You're not there to be served. You're there to serve. I had a guy in Canada come up to you one time. He said, you know, and his son was there, about 20 years old. And I just taught on this. And the guy came up, he said, I was really offended by what you said. And I said, what did I say? And he said, you talk about husbands and your needs not being met. I said, well, what's the problem? And he said, well, well I, I, I divorced my wife because my needs weren't being met. I said, your problem's not with me, it's with the scripture. You're to love, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Yeah, but she didn't meet my needs. I said, you don't understand. You're there to meet needs. I, I know it's hard, and a wife can't, even the best of wives can't meet all your needs. Nobody can meet your needs. Christ meets our needs. But your job is not there. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. As Christian husbands, we represent Christ in the home. It's our job. Well, well it just, I was just really offended by what you said because I, I did divorce her because, because she didn't meet my needs. I said, are you a Christian? Do you know the Lord? He goes, yes. I said, does your wife know the Lord? He said, yes. I said, you had no grounds to divorce her biblically. You should know that. I mean, you're in sin. Am I always that direct? Yeah. No, I'm not. But in that situation... No, your job is to give. You know, we get tired and yeah, we get exhausted. But that's our job. Now, you can't make someone else do what's right. You can't make someone else follow the Lord. I think you get what I'm saying here, and I think you get what the Scripture is saying. The nuclear family is the bedrock of civilization, and God invented it, and God created it. And the enemy is doing everything he can do to bring down the truth that Christ put in place for the well-being of all people. So homosexuality destroys people. Transgenderism destroys people. And in the Old Testament, you know, they had that going on in the Old Testament. They would make men eunuchs all the stuff we're seeing today was in the Old Testament among the Canaanites. And God said to the people of Israel in Leviticus 18, don't be like those nations or I'll have to judge you. They became like the nations. We've become like those nations. The third point, I'll move on this. A true truth, Jesus is the breath of life. The breath of life. That may not make much sense in the context, but go to Isaiah 2. And Isaiah is speaking to the nation because they've turned against God and his word and they haven't listened to the prophets. And they're about to go into judgment and into captivity. 2.22, stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. For why should he be esteemed? Um, in this culture, we tend to elevate men. Uh, we tend to elevate men who write in the New York Times. We tend to elevate men who um, are academics. We tend to elevate men who are in high places. Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he shall meditate both day and night, and he shall be like a tree firmly planted by streams of living water. There are two ways to live. You don't put your trust in man. Because men can't even breathe without Jesus. Did you see that? Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. Why should he be esteemed? Esteem God. Esteem the Son of God. And then three, 
3 is so relevant. And I'm going to read this for a minute. And you're going to think, I mean, Isaiah, he must have written this yesterday. Because he's going to talk about what happens when God sends judgment on a nation. Listen to this. For behold, the Lord God of hosts, Isaiah 3, is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah. And this just wasn't for them. It's for any nation in the future. It's for the last days which we're in. The Lord is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah, watch this, both supply and support. The whole supply of bread. That's interesting. So Jesus, who is the bread of life, when he judges, the bread of life will remove the bread. And did you see that? He's going to remove both supply and support. Normally every year we get together at Thanksgiving and one of the things that inevitably comes up is the supply line in America. Every year we talk about it. Just an update on how things are going, how the ports are doing, the ships, container ships. Every year we do that, it's a tradition. We've been doing that since I was a little boy. We've never talked about that. We're sure talking about it now, aren't we? You see all the pictures? You know, you, you, you go to the store, you can't get mayonnaise. Empty. When you see that, remember this verse. Both supply and support. The whole supply of bread. You see, what's happening, he's going to remove it. It's, it's a judgment. The things that have been there are going to be removed. In Colossians 2.17, it says, In him, all things hold together. All things. Law of gravity, everything holds together. He holds nations together. He holds families together. He holds economies together. He, ho he holds all things. He holds them together. He's the adhesive. But can, he can also remove them as a judgment. Then go on and see if this doesn't sound familiar. And the whole supply of water. And then he moves on and makes this point. He's going to remove capable leaders. Capable leaders in all segments of society are going to be re replaced by incompetent leaders. Does this ring a bell at all? <laughs> Look at verse 2. The mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50, and the honorable man, the counselor and the expert artesian, and the skillful enchanter, I will make mere lads, mere boys, their princes. And capricious children will rule over them. The idea is capricious children with arbitrary power will rule over them. Sound familiar? In other words, the mature in every segment of society, and there are mature men who don't know the Lord, but they live their lives according to certain principles in the scripture, although they're not Christians. Maybe in their background they have Christian home, Christian grandparents, whatever. But those men are spread throughout society, but God will remove them at every level in every segment, and they'll be replaced by incompetents who are like boys, who are like children. Look at verse 8. For Jer Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their actions are against the Lord. That's what's happened here. To rebel against his glorious presence. The expression of their faces bear witness against them. And they display their sin like Sodom. Well, that's interesting. They don't, they don't even conceal it. And they don't. They put their books in libraries for little five-year-olds to see. And we're not supposed to say a thing about it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Now, this is somewhat depressing. Thank God for verse 10. Say to the righteous that it will go well with them. For they will eat the fruit of their actions. 
So when the supply chain goes down, when this and this and it's all start falling apart, and there's no supply, Philippians 4.19, and my God shall what? Supply. All your needs according to his riches and glory. Doesn't mean we won't go through hardship. It just means he's going to supply all your needs. Give us his day our daily bread. Woe to the wicked. It will go badly with him for what he deserves will be done to him. Oh, my people, the oppressors are children. They're childlike. And women rule over them. Oh, my people, those who guide you lead you astray and confuse the direction of your paths. That's why you don't listen to him. You listen to him. H.V. Leupold, and I'll close with this, great old scholar, wrote this on this passage. Isaiah reverts to the subject of the immature rulers who are not only guilty of grave irregularities and actions, that smack of inexperience, they are actually oppressors of those who, for whose good they should rule. In fact, in the absence of good masculine leadership, tyrannical women have taken over. Apparently such cases as Jezebel and Athaliah, 1 Kings 18, 2 Kings 11, 1, would be good examples of what the prophets had in mind. We're full of Jezebel's and Athaliah's. And it's a judgment. The last point, the last true truth the Lord Jesus provides for his people in the very worst of times. When I get up in the morning, I quote to myself a couple of passages. One of them is Lamentations 321. Uh, And it's in the context of great depression because the nation has just gone down and Jeremiah is, he's fighting off depression. He says, there's no pain like my pain. And I've lost all hope. You ever feel that way? Sure you do. But then in 321, he kind of pulls himself together and says, this I recall to mind. I got to think. I got to think my way out of this. This I recall to mind. Therefore, I have hope that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. Second verse I quote to myself. Out loud. Isaiah 46, 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and you remnant of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth and carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I will be the same. Even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have created you. And I will carry you. I will bury you. And I will deliver you. Every morning I quote those verses. Because Jesus. Is the bread of life. And as bad as it gets. He's going to get me through. And he'll get you through. If you trust in him. So father we thank you for your word. We see all of what Isaiah said going on around us. I mean, we're there. But we're not in despair. This is part of your plan. You have a plan for the ages. All of this is moving, just as Revelation indicates and Daniel indicates, to a one-world government with a one-world leader who is opposed to you. We shouldn't be surprised. You're just setting it up. It looks like it's falling apart, but you're just setting it up. And you got your eye on your people. So help us not to lose hope. Help us to remember the truth. 
Help us to quote the truth to ourselves to fight off wrong emotions. And give us hope <laughs> because Jesus is the bread of life. We're never in a crisis that your absolute power cannot redeem. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.